everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Scott. No, I'm not. I'm not Dr. Scott. I'm with Dr. Scott. <laughs> and you didn't even have that written down. Where'd that come from? That's what. That's great. It only took 110 episodes to say your name instead of mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm Dr. Shiloh. Good to have you guys back with us in the middle of September already. And we're bringing you a psych episode today, but... It's not quite psych traditionally, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. It has a little bit of everything in it as we move into it. And as we are doing wish fulfillment to move into the fall spooky season. Yes. Yes. Exactly what we're manifesting. But first, so this Saturday, wanted to let you guys know that we're going to be doing our monthly live stream this time at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Our guest is going to be John Taylor. He's the host of the podcasts Twisted and Criminal Conduct. Yes. And we, again, another synchronicity, we connected with him in Dallas at the True Crime Podcast Festival. And turns out he's a former Secret Service agent. So like we were in Dallas, we had just dropped our episode on assassinations. And here we meet John. So we're like, John, we have to scoop you up and bring you on a live stream. Well, I guess it's not so secret anymore. Did you get permission from him to dox him? Yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, we're going to continue the conversation just about the realities of the Secret Service and our assassinations episode and see what kind of stories John can share. He shared a couple, which hopefully he can talk about. So that would be great. So again, this coming Saturday, September 24th at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. YouTube is the absolute best place to watch because it has the best chat feature and just get an alert, you know, subscribe to our channel so you can get an alert and it'll pop up and you can be on with us. Yeah. I just realized it's an hour earlier than we usually do on our live streams. And we'll, we will be constantly reminding you of that this week. So no worries. Indeed. Also, you can still get tickets to attend the Pacific Northwest True Crime Podcast Festival. You get to see us speak. If you come, we're going to be talking on October 8th in Auburn, Washington at their event about incels. So go to pnwtruecrimefest.com and enter code LA not so one five to get 15% off your tickets for the event. Yes. And for anybody that's local in that area, Seattle, Washington, Auburn area, please, we're going to be there a day and a half in advance. Yep. So we're renting cars. We want to line up all the adventures to do in that beautiful area. So please send us suggestions. That would be super cool. Let me give you a, the latest episode recap. Last week was episode 109. And it was the vintage case of the murder of Marion Parker from 1927 that occurred here in Los Angeles. Brutal, disturbing crime and episode. Fascinating episode for me as far as what we were able to pull from the psychological issues about the crime and about the perpetrator, which I found really fascinating because there was so much evidence and so much interview with this guy. In that episode, we enlisted help from Greg and Daniel from the LA Meekly podcast. We love them. Their show is an LA history podcast, which is totally hilarious, by the way. And they freaking know how to do research. Like, I'm kind of blown away. I'm aspiring third level of of research that is not journal oriented. I mean, they really know how to explore all the other nooks and crannies outside academia. Yeah. Their episodes are longer than ours, you guys. So yeah, yeah. that's a thing. Who knew (laughs) that that was a thing? (laughs) Right. So anyway, we we knew that they would be the perfect 
people to team up with on a vintage episode. We give an overview of the kidnapping, murder, and really badly botched ransom exchanges of Marion Parker. And then Daniel and Greg gave us insight into Los Angeles during the late 1920s and specifically some history on the area of Elysian Park. And you don't want to miss this one. It's really good in preparation for it. Dr. Shiloh and I actually got to go to the LA County Sheriff's Museum and got to look at the documents and explore extensive, disturbing photographs that they have from the case. It was a fascinating experience, wasn't it? I mean, like we had done all the research, we were familiar with what we were talking about, but then to look at the evidence was, was pretty jarring. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go back and listen to the episode, we talk about even the other layers of just literally the room we were in looking at the evidence has its own I don't want to give it away if you haven't heard it, but its own twist to the history and the spookiness and just the surrealness of being where we were at. Oh, yeah. The the recreations. I mean, it's not even recreations. It's actual cells where these inmates were held. And yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a vibe going on. There's definitely Indeed. a vibe. Yeah. Indeed. Well, great segue to <laughs> yeah. what we're bringing to you guys today. Of course, I just got back from Savannah and was embedded in all things... Southern Gothic, Southern Spooky, as well as True Crime. And we thought this would be such a great opportunity to bring you the real true story of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil because it's like synonymous with Savannah at this point. And, you know, Savannah has the reputation of being the most haunted city in at least America and was just a really cool experience to go for the first time. And the story is really interesting. There's a lot. It's definitely going to be more of a storytelling episode today than psych heavy, but I think we're able to come at it with some really interesting sociological and cultural topics as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That is just interesting stuff. So probably the most popular work of entertainment to come out of the city of Savannah, Georgia is the hit book and subsequent film, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. The book came out in 1994 and then the film debuted in 97. It's set in the mid 1980s. So it's not vintage. This doesn't fall into a vintage episode for us, although it's starting to feel like the I was going to say, <laughs> like, no, it's for, I know. I think that's, that's speaking of our age, why we don't want it to be a vintage episode, but it actually pretty much is. Well, it's our show. So we get to say what okay. we do, what's right. vintage or not. Okay. So it's set in the 80s. The book was penned by John Barrent and is described as a nonfiction novel or faction, a blend of fact and fiction. For instance, Barrent reconstructs some portions of the book to put himself in really key scenes of the story. And really, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is a true crime book about this salacious murder in Savannah in very recent history. And it includes real people using their real names, real events. Although, yes, it's somewhat rearranged and or things are omitted for the literary style that he chose to go with this book. Here's a quote from a book critic from the Washington Examiner in 1996. Quote, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil deserves its astonishing success. It is compulsively readable, a fascinating mix of an in-cold-blood style true crime story, a comedy of manners, and a wonderful evocation of the eccentricities, beauties, and legends of a grand old city gone to seed and then reborn. So in Savannah now, it is simply just referred to as the book. Right. (laughs) Since the impact on tourism was massive and absolutely permanent. In the couple of years after the book's release, they saw a 46% jump in tourism. 
Yeah. And then, of course, the film came out and people were just obsessed and wanted to see all this gorgeous stuff. And then also kind of the macabre tourism of going to see where this crime took place. So it's really important to zero in on some factors that really hold a lot of sway in what we're talking about today. And that is the culture of Savannah within the overarching culture of the South. It is a city with a history of not only the expected racial divides that have historically existed in the United States, but also within its own classes. Transplants to the city and the area may be well on the receiving end of a welcome wagon, but you are and you will be an outsider for decades, if not the entirety of your life. This is something as a Southerner that I know with people that have moved to Savannah for work. And it's interesting because people that live there won't necessarily say that's a thing. But all of my friends who have been there for long periods of time say that it absolutely, absolutely is a thing. And then to make it even more complicated, there's the issue of old money versus new money and the concept of the nouveau riche. So that is a very big factor in our story today. As well as the city itself and the buildings themselves. Savannah's architecture includes many classical styles, including Federal, Georgian, Gothic Revival, Greek Revival, as well as some of the newer styles as the city has grown. And it's grown because of the incredible expansion of tourism, which started off with the book, but has grown to encompass everything else that Savannah offers, which is stunning, stunning beauty and so close to so many different weather environments. And you get the like the best of the South really there Mm -hmm. is what I'm One of the things to keep in mind if you've never been to Savannah, if you're willing to go and explore some websites or look at pictures, is that many of these classically designed homes were designed and built around public or community gardens. It was a very efficient way to design communities in the earlier days of the U.S. Many of the houses were elevated, not only to increase airflow underneath the house and around the house, but also as a status symbol to show that you had enough money to build your house up a little bit so that you were higher than everybody else. I know that seems like a very odd thing, but it plays throughout the story of Savannah about why the houses themselves hold such status. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. And it's, I mean, you can just feel it. You know, you walk, you you take any street and you're inevitably going to run into one of these squares and you just stand in the middle of it and see these gorgeous homes on all four sides around it. And you just feel completely transported yeah. to a different, it's, it's such a time capsule, I guess is the only way to describe it. So really, let's talk about the plot description of the book. And remember, this is a fictional version of a true story, one that has been lauded as being quite accurate with only a few exceptions for creative liberty. But the adaptation of the book was directed by Clint Eastwood. I had forgotten that he directed it. Right. I mean, this was one of his earlier, I guess, directed. Well, I don't know. I don't know, honestly, how I long I think he's it been actually directing. was one of his. Well, it was certainly a departure from what he usually did. I mean, he was Dirty Harry, yeah, right? Yeah, the Western. So suddenly, stuff for like him that. to move into this true crime faction well, yes. and to be so good at it, because he really created a seminal moment in these types of works. Yeah, definitely. So it was directed by Clint Eastwood. It starred John Cusack as the writer. So Barrett puts himself in the story, as I said, although the character in the movie is named John Kelso. And then it also stars a very young Jude Law 
Oh, yeah. I saw him and I was like, holy crap, that's Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't remember that when I went back and watched it. And he plays the victim, Danny Hansford. That's the real name, the character name. They change it to Billy Hansen for the film. And then Kevin Spacey is the trigger man and staple of the Savannah social scene, Mr. Jim Williams. Which really adds a strange... flavor to this whole thing because one thing I think we can maybe most people can all agree on is Kevin Spacey is a brilliant actor I mean the guy is brilliant but he is a problematic individual and so when you saw this move decades ago you're like just transported by his ability to inhabit this character and now it's there's like a little bit of an ick factor going Ooh, wow is an ick factor especially you go back and watch it and in the book and the film Danny, the victim who we're going to lead you through this, but is is romantically involved with Jim, is really depicted as being adult, but much younger. And it's kind of weird to go back and watch it now that we know about Kevin Spacey's transgressions in real life and what has come out in the Me Too movement, specifically the cases out of Hollywood. So yeah, it, it, it yeah. gives you some pause for sure. Yeah, his performance is he chooses. I mean, I've seen Kevin Spacey play a, a lot of different characters, but he certainly goes very much with oily charm throughout this, I would say. Oily charm. So Spacey plays Jim Williams, who was a successful, very well-connected, wealthy, and sort of closeted gay man, sort of the unspoken word. We talk about that a little bit more about the LGBTQ issues at that time in that space. But let's just say, for want of a better term at this point, he was a closeted gay man in Savannah, Georgia in the 1980s. Williams was so well-known and revered that his annual Christmas party was incredibly high-profile, and it became such a regular event that word got back to writers in New York, around the country, the character John Kelso is going to write a magazine article about this party. So Kelso gets to see this wide swath of the eccentricities and the contradictions of Savannah while he's there on assignment. And just before he leaves to fly back to New York, Williams is accused of shooting and killing his young lover played, as Dr. Shiloh said, a very young Jude Law. Right. So Kelso decides to stay and investigate these events with now the plan of writing a book about it instead of just a little Christmas party article about a fancy house. And he already has this working relationship with Jim Williams, who now claims that he had to act in self-defense against his violent lover. The murder trial further peels away and examines the layers of the hierarchies in Savannah culture, as well as William's sort of wink and nod to sexuality, which is now potentially an influencing factor in the legal proceedings and really could end up swaying a jury towards a guilty verdict just because of the times. Absolutely. It's like, it's okay if nobody's talking about it, but if it's going to be brought out and jurors jurors are going to be expected to make a decision, well, of course, then they have to switch their perspective. And we already, we covered, I mean, it's, there's a lot of enjoyable discomfort portrayed Mm, in this movie, I think. But yeah, going back and watching it again in view of what we know about Kevin Spacey, it's it's a different kind of discomfort, right? It is. And what did you say? Oily? Oily charm. Oily charm. Yeah, it's, that definitely fits. And then like, I just, my mind starts going to all the other like weird shit that Kevin Spacey, like after he was fired from House of Cards and then he did that YouTube video like in that character. Was truly bizarre. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, I can't hear this southern accent from anymore. It's grossing me out. So yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, there was a whole thing for me that was like a little like was off putting because that was that was the time that I was living in the South as a young man in college and older gay men really all tried to, in, in the South tried to adopt that look like the dapper, well dressed, always well pressed, this incredibly manicured mustache yeah, and the long cigarettes that were meant to look like cheroots like they were oh, like mini right. cigars and it's just it was very real watching that so yeah, yeah. Um, so okay like we'll do a Kevin Spacey episode later <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> back to the film the film does a really great job at visually depicting the quirkiness of Savannah and its residents like the man who walks an invisible dog down the street every day and the brilliant scientist who ties horse flies to him himself wherever he goes, as well as depicting really the caricatures of the eccentric, wealthy social circles when we sort of get to, as viewers, get invited to John Williams' big parties. Oh, yeah. There's this great scene where John Cusack is caught in traffic behind a big Cadillac and can see a woman driving the car in front of him and she's distractedly driving because she keeps intently looking down at her empty passenger seat. And he happens to meet her later in person. He's like, was there someone in the car with you? Did you have, or did you have a pet? And she said, oh, no, honey, I was watching my stories. So she had a, oh, a portable right. television set so yeah. that she could watch soap operas while she was driving. Right, right, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> portable television sets. Jeez. I know. Did you find any strange people that you interacted with or eccentrics? <laughs> nothing like the film, I have to say. I met nothing but absolutely wonderful people. My husband, my daughter, and I kept saying, like, everybody's so nice here. <laughs> But yeah, oh my God, though, the bachelorette parties are just nonstop. I thought Austin was big for bachelorette parties everywhere you go in Savannah. Like, that's the thing. And our Uber driver was like, oh, it's not even summertime. Like, you should see it during that time, but they're everywhere. My daughter goes, Mom, I've never seen so many blondes in one place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not true blondes, but they're blondes. Oh, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I really enjoyed like being present with people and chatting with them. When someone would come up, the manager would come up to your table at a restaurant and just I had to find to like slow. I had to slow myself down from like California. Yeah, it's very different. Fast paced. And it was nice to put my fork down and engage in conversation and not be like, "Ugh, when's this person going to leave my table? <laughs> so it, it was very cool. Very, I met a lot of wonderful people. You did a walking tour, right? Didn't you do a haunted... Yeah. Uh, you did a ghost tour. Yeah, we did a haunted walking tour to get all the history and spooky stories around Savannah. So Gentile and Bards is who we went with. They're wonderful. Our guide was amazing. And I may have captured something spooky on... on Not video, pictures. So I'll have to show you later. Oh, cool. You got an orb or something. Yeah. Yeah, so the book and the film really have a lot of notable characters. And we'll bring those major players in... Yeah. As we move on through the story. Yes. So let's get into the real story. First, just our trigger warnings here. Clearly, we're talking about murder. We're talking about gun violence. I think one of our case studies at the end does have like some maiming body part removal yes. that could be troubling. So... Right. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into the, the real story. So going back to Williams, he is the perpetrator in this case. And for better or worse, Williams was a major player in the restoration preservation 
and progress and evolution of Savannah to even to this day. At the time, he set this stage for a certain level of high-level renovations and restorations to all of these homes that were really kind of falling to seed. And mm. his contributions to this day are felt all over the Savannah Historic District. As a successful antiques dealer, Williams used both his copious talent and charm, albeit oily maybe, <laughs> to create relationships with the financial elite and old money of Savannah to become the historic preservationist. And in using these talents, William became one of the few that was able to be recognized in spite of this new money of his to become a local socialite. So during his 30-year career, Williams drove the efforts that resulted in preserving more than 50 buildings in Savannah and the the other low country areas, as well as really really inspiring the movement through the entire region. There's a really great scene and line in the movie when Williams is questioned about his position in society. And he says, yes, I am nouveau riche, but then it's the riche that counts now, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so he's even he's smart enough to know that if he has enough money yep. and gives enough big parties, then he's going to have a doorway open up to him in those interactions. So Arthur John Barrett describes William as a genius bachelor, which interestingly enough is in the South a well-known historical code word for gay. Not so much the genius bit, but the bachelor part. And I remember when I finally came out to my mom and my other family members, and my mom was in her 60s at the time, and she, as we got more comfortable having these conversations, she said that she grew up knowing about quote-unquote confirmed bachelors that would reside in roommate situations with other men. And it was, everybody knew what was going on. You just didn't talk about it. Like, or you just didn't acknowledge that it was anything other than a, a convenience. And then the female version of that was often referred to, even in the South, as a Boston marriage. Isn't that interesting? That Where does that come from? Boston I don't marriage. know. I'm sure somebody out there will know what the history of that term is for female relationships. Barrett goes on to acknowledge William's talent as akin to turning coal into diamonds. Williams himself, aside from his talent, was really a self-created man, probably a bit narcissistic, if not a lot, <laughs> but used his talents and his confidence and his swagger to refurbish historic homes to points actually beyond their original grandeur. And many commenters and authors have wondered really what Savannah would look like today without his influence and in his work. Mm, makes the story even more intriguing. Well, well, let's turn to our victim, Danny Hansford, and talk about him for a moment. Danny was born in Savannah on March 1st, 1960, and he was born to very young parents who had three boys and Danny was the youngest. His parents divorced soon after he was born. And when Danny was seven, his father died by suicide. So his mom was left essentially with these three boys to take care of. At age 11, he and his brothers were placed in an orphanage in Savannah, returning to their mother from time to time when she was able to care for them. And there are some accounts that he spent a few days in a mental health facility at age 15, but wasn't able to find any more details on that. By the age of 21, Danny was still in the Savannah area, and he was seriously dating a woman who he was quite fond of, but he was also working as a sex worker. And there were rumors that he was funding a drug habit, but at the very least, he was likely taking on all kinds of odd jobs, including being a handyman, to make money to keep afloat because he really had no real education 
or other work experience. It's around this time that he meets Jim Williams, becoming his handyman and eventual lover. Jim also allowed Danny to live with him when he needed a place to stay, stating that Danny provided some security over the house and its expensive antiques. I think on another account, Jim Williams said that he had some sort of ailment where like he passed out from time to time. And so he kind of needed someone to be with him all the time. So he had this other sort of medical excuse to keep Danny around a lot. But Danny continued his relationship with his girlfriend, even when he was having this relationship with Jim Williams. And this would be a real point of contention with Jim, who... Mm -hmm. Now, this is a man who's used to getting what he wants, and he's not fond of sharing his many possessions. So while the movie places the crime on the night of the really famous Christmas party, in reality, the crime occurred on May 2nd, 1981, which I mean is understandable. Isn't Jesus's real birthday supposed to be months later than <laughs> December 25th? <laughs> yes, right? that's right. <laughs> so of course... <laughs> Only Jim Williams really knew what happened that night, despite the public stories and court assertions. But it does end up being a fascinating tale. Yes. So according to Williams, he and Hansford had been arguing most of the day. They took a break to separate, cool down, collect themselves before sort of re-engaging again. But before that could happen, Hansford allegedly pushed the invaluable 18th century English grandfather clock in the foyer, smashing it to the floor. Following the destruction of the clock, he then barred into the room where Williams was re reading, pulled out a gun, aimed at Williams, and pulls the trigger. Williams alleged that Hansford's gun jammed, and in fear for his life, he then pulls out his gun and fires at Hansford, killing him on the finely restored and polished floor of his study. So at nearly three in the morning, 30 minutes after the murder, Williams called the police, stating that there had been a shooting at the Mercer house. And this was a significant amount of time that led a lot of the investigators to believe that there was a good chance that Williams had tampered with the scene in order to create a vignette that would support his claims of self-defense. So when police arrived, Jim exclaimed, I shot him. He's in the other room and then led them to Danny's body. And there was evidence of a struggle. There were items turned over, including the clock. And Danny was lying face down with a pistol under his hand. His gunshot wounds indicated he had been shot in the chest, in the back, and then just above his right ear. There were bullet holes on the floor that matched up with the shots to the back in the ear as if he was already down on the ground when those shots were fired. And then the study of ballistics showed that the round to the back was fired almost directly above Danny's body as he laid on the ground. The investigators eventually would note that some of the other details of the crime that indicated some staging, including the fact that the leg of a chair was on top of Danny's pants leg and that there was blood on parts of his bodies that were not injured or near other pools of blood from these injuries. So when Danny's body was taken to the hospital, investigators claimed that they had bagged his hands for later gunshot residue testing. Right. And during questioning at the scene, Jim tells police he was shooting at me and I returned fire. He later expanded that Danny had been at Mercer House intoxicated on alcohol and marijuana and was playing Atari and that Jim tells him, I'm. he had this trip coming up to Europe to go look for more antiques and he tells Danny, I'm no longer taking you. I'm going to take my close friend, Joe. He's going to go with me. And he says that Danny just went wild. He lost it. He stomped on the video game system. He started breaking 
unpacking furniture around the house and then the clock and that Jim stated he really feared for his life at this Mm. time, which is the magic words for self-defense strategy. Oh, yeah. So Jim then asserted that he kept guns hidden all over the house because of fear of break-ins. He has a very expensive home, very expensive things in there. He has his antique restoration business essentially in the house as well. So he said that Danny grabs a gun from the study and fires shots at him before Jim then arms himself and returns shots. So we already have differences in stories here, whether there were shots fired, whether the gun jammed, it's kind of all over the place. And according to court records, and there's some corroboration to this, Jim's friend, Joe, that you mentioned before, the one that was supposed to go on the European trip with him testified that Jim did phone him to let him know that the Europe trip was off because Danny was so upset. And then 50 minutes later, Jim called Joe back and stated he had shot Danny and to come over. Obviously, this is still the word of the suspect's close friend against a dead man's body, (laughs) but it fits the timeline of the fight happening suddenly. Additionally, police had records that about a month earlier, they were called to the Mercer house where Jim reported that Danny had shot a couple of rounds inside the house, but not at him. So we are actually seeing a demonstration of a pattern of behavior or at the very least, some intimate partner violence leading up to the murder. So the night of Danny's death, Jim is arrested and then bonds out. And then then a month later, he is indicted for that murder. Right, right. So the real unusual part of this whole case is the trials because there were many. Again, creative license was used to really streamline the story into a solid two-hour frame when we're talking about the movie. So in the film, Williams was tried once and in real life, he was actually tried four times, which is really fascinating from a legal and societal perspective. I talk about this later, but I think it really speaks to if you have unlimited resources. Oh, yeah. What you can do to gain your freedom. But the initial... Guilty verdicts from the first two juries were appealed on the basis of some contradictory police testimony. It actually stemmed back from that first incident when cops came out when he reported that Danny had shot some some rounds into the walls. The report from that incident, the, the police officer said yes, like documented, yes, these are fresh gunshot wounds. When later in Jim's trial, the cop testified that no, they weren't fresh back then. So there was, his defense team was able to appeal based on that contradictory testimony. And then the second trial was appealed because of some expert witness issues that had been contested. But Jim's police interviews and then the subsequent trial testimony, because he decided to testify on his own behalf, included many varying accounts of the events of the night of the murder. Some saying that they had been fighting all day, some saying that Danny had just swung by to get some money, and that's when the fight happened. And then there's the video game scenario. And really the key to the prosecution's case for each trial was that when Danny's hands were tested there was no gunshot residue on him and the scene was clearly staged. So by the time the third trial came around, the defense has now a star witness that changes everything. This was a nurse who had been on duty the night that Danny's body was brought to the hospital. And she testified that Danny's hands were not bagged until he was at the hospital, thus resulting in the poor integrity of the evidence. She was instructed to bag the hands and she put plastic garbage bags on them, which the defense stated, well, that could have caused a moisture, which would then have destroyed the gunshot residue. So the jury was not able to reach a unanimous verdict, a hung jury, in other words, but the prosecution decided to move forward with another trial. 
Yes. So by the time the fourth trial is held, which in itself at the time was the record in the state of Georgia for proceedings, an amount of trials for a murder case, the proceedings get moved to Augusta, Georgia, where the jury did not know who Jim Williams was, nor did they give a shit about his wealth and his influence in sort of small town Savannah as far as they're concerned. So it's really interesting because Jim ends up being acquitted of charges under the plea of self-defense. So the entire span of the hearing trials lasted a little over seven years from February of 1982 to May of 1989. So in May 1989, Williams left the court finally a free man. So I, like I said before, I think this is a testament to the power of money and being able to financially fight for your freedom with just unlimited resources. I mean, really... Maybe not the hung jury and then, but the appeals, certainly. Yeah, he was found able, guilty to twice. To be able to have enough financial support to go through all those. A lot of people wear out and can't, oh, sure. can't continue with the appeals process. Yeah. But perhaps he finally earned his freedom because of Miss Minerva's appeal to the spirits and the powers that be. Well, that's where there's a really fascinating element to this story that is another facet of Southern culture. And like you said, Miss Minerva's appeal to the spirits, the powers that be, and as in most cautionary tales of magic and mayhem, magic has a price. William's status as a free man was short-lived because eight months later, On January 14th, 1990, he was found dead in his study from complications stemming from pneumonia. But it could have also been exhaustion from seven years of stress. It could have been a long-impaired immune system for completely different reasons. Who knows? Right. Or who knows? Maybe it was Hansford's angry spirit working around Miss Minerva's conjure. I'm going to let him win his trial, but he's not going to live to enjoy it. Ooh, all right. I see some foreshadowing of us talking about spooky things in a moment. But you can go visit where all of this took place. The Mercer House, previously owned by Jim Williams. It's now the Mercer Williams House Museum and is currently owned by Mr. Williams' sister, Dorothy. And you can go tour it. So one thing before moving on, we're going to talk about a little bit more about the racial issues when we get into the magical aspects of the use of hoodoo and and conjure in this particular case. But Savannah has become so identified with the book and the movie and the tourism as a result of that, that a lot of times the real true impact of Southern heritage gets lost in that. And I was really, I, I pulled two New York Times articles for today's show. One of them from the early 90s was incredibly badly written, badly, badly written, badly, badly researched. I'm still going to refer to it for uh, another example, but one that was written that is really, really good talks about uh, a Mr. Johnny Brown, who is one of Savannah's really few black tour guides. And he has a, a tour bus in downtown Savannah. And you'll get the real deal. Apparently, he is really, really respected for giving people a real tour of Savannah and really talking about the impact of racism stemming from all of the stressors of the Civil War. He talks about Black Confederate soldiers, Mm -hmm. talking about how the emancipation of slaves really didn't even hit that area until the 60s. So, 
it's really pretty refreshing to know that there's someone there that is not just dealing with like all the colorful characters from Midnight in the Garden of Good yeah, and Evil. Or just like the whitewash version of here's Savannah's history. Exactly. There's more to it than that, which has all to do with levels and striations of class and race and culture. And another part of that also has to do with the LGBTQIA community in the South in the 80s. I mean, mm-hmm. Everybody in the wealthy and upper crust population of Savannah knew that Williams was gay. But then again, it's the 1980s and it's in a very class structured area of the South. I mean, like I said, there's a wink nod element to this, especially if you're rich, because money opens a lot of doors and also raises a lot of barriers or protection around you. But there is one character in the movie who describes himself and his neighbors as sophisticated because they didn't care about it. Like there are Southerners there. They didn't really care about his sexuality. But it was the way that it was made public that was a problem. Like what is implied definitely is that he won the trial and he got like nine months as a free man. But his standing in the community was irrevocably changed because his sexuality became part and parcel of his defense, really. Right. Like all that dirty laundry got drug out through a crime. Right. It's like, we, we're we fine with you being gay as long as we don't have to talk about it. We'll yeah. like make innuendo, but we're not really going to talk about it. And Williams himself was not comfortable with testifying and being cross-examined about his relationships in court. But during those hearings, his mother was present and in, in an attempt to spare her the details, she actually was put on the defense witness list so she would not be able to be in the courtroom during other witness testimony. So he really was concerned about his mom. There was a level of shame. He didn't want her to know about what his lifestyle may have entailed using sex workers, engaging people in this way. And aside from the time period, pretty much any vacation area, particularly those that are well-populated and near well-traveled beaches and water-adjacent areas, are going to draw a lot of hospitality and service professionals to support a growing tourist industry. So high-traffic tourist spots tend to draw more LGBTQ employees, thereby the businesses and industries that they themselves would support. But again, it is the 1980s and the varying strata of society that might be attending the same bar that caters to the gay crowd might be well enacting a strict don't ask, don't tell policy. So this isn't all just about Jim Williams. In terms of casting, a bold and pretty much perfect choice is, I don't want to say the character because she's a real person, but Lady Chablis. Yes. And she was a local cabaret performer who plays herself in the movie. And the movie reports her birth name is Frank, which is incorrect for some strange creative reason. She was born Benjamin. Lady Chablis had a challenge in the use of the term drag queen being used to describe her. And of course, it was an inaccurate term, as the term is usually used to describe a male, generally a performer who dresses to perform as female. Lady Chablis always considered herself to be a female, which in our current terminology, we would hopefully honor her identity. This was a big deal at the time, as historically, these types of roles would go to cisgendered individuals if they even included it in the story at all. Exactly. And she's... Honestly, like the best part of the movie. (laughs) What would have been horrible would have been a straight actor playing this role. 
uh, instead of her being able to play this this really sort of central character in the city itself. And yes. she also, of course, shows what a, a great performer she is because she does a fantastic job. And I, I did want to quote something from Sam Rydell, who wrote in an article entitled Midnight in the Garden of Transgender. She exists in direct contrast to Spacey's Williams, a nouveau riche white cis gay man who bitterly remarks that his position in society's upper echelons requires that he remain closeted as soon as his sexuality is made public. Williams's friends abandon him. On the other hand, Chablis is a voguing, vamping example of what out queerness can feel like if we grasp our full identities and live them with confidence. Williams dies of a heart attack upon being released back into the wild, while the real Chablis is still performing while pushing 60. This contrast would be entirely absent if Chablis were played by a cis woman. So Lady Chablis was not the only real-life character in the movie. Many of the extras were portrayed by the actual individuals themselves. They, they played themselves in this movie a decade and a half later. And interestingly, it's reported that the majority of them had very few issues with the book and the film. The follow-up interviews, and there are many that sprang from the success of this book and film, showed that most of the Savannah residents were relatively comfortable, if not downright happy, with how they were portrayed or how they portrayed themselves, as well as people saying, no, it's our quirky town at Savannah, so of course, we come off pretty well in this. I thought that was great. Even, even the bulldog, the mascot of the university, played himself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so when I was in Savannah, obviously our wonderful editor, sound editor and creative mind behind Santa Maybe, Jason Esri was there. And he told me, of course, I'm not going to say who, but he said he had a run-in with one of the people that played themselves in the movie. And he was very proud of it. And there was even a little bit of a drunken moment of like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> sort of thing going oh, on. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like, it, it became their little like claim to fame for yeah, a while. I so can understand fun. that. I can understand yep. it. So let's take a moment to hear from some of the sponsors of today's show. So we made a brief mention of Miss Minerva earlier in the story. And Minerva is another fascinating character in the book and film. She is a hoodoo practitioner. She is intimately tied with Jim Williams, depicted as performing rituals with him and with the author's character, John Kelso, in the movie. There's a scene of them at the cemetery before and after the trial doing some rituals. So we want to get into this a little bit and talk about hoodoo as part of the cultural fabric that we're putting together from this story. Yeah, it's interesting. Aside from her portrayal, which is really wonderful, that hoodoo is something we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of it in a second. But again, I want to tie this to the undercurrent of themes of don't ask, don't tell that exist in the mm. South. Not to say that they don't exist in all strata of society around this country and around the world, but hoodoo is another thing that I didn't know about growing up because I wasn't Black and Black people didn't talk about it. It wasn't until I went away and lived in other areas and heard about it and then came back and talked with people in northern Alabama that were like, oh, yeah, well, that's one thing. And that's different from this. Here's Appalachian granny magic. And this is this is the Santeria that the immigrants practice. So we start we're not talk about any of that. We're going to talk about First United Methodist and First Episcopalian, oh, right. we but we don't talk about that. So Minerva is portrayed as a sort of creepy, but really fascinating character. It's interesting here that Williams treats her with great respect. 
Yeah. And I don't know if he did in real life or if that's a directorial choice. I'm not really sure. But she offers a particularly haunting perspective on the crime that's taken place. And she doesn't offer any concrete promises at all, which is generally the way Hudret practitioners will present their work, their their petitions, their conjure or root work that they do for Mm -hmm. people. Right. So she has a line where she says, quote, the half hour before midnight is for doing good. The half hour after midnight is for doing evil. Hence the name. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Yeah. And garden because bodies are planted there, right? So just some clarification for any listeners that may not be familiar with this term. Hoodoo is not voodoo. And we'll talk about that as we go on. While it's not so controversial at the time, we do need to make a distinction here to necessarily differentiate a religion versus a magical practice or a folk magic practice. So voodoo, when you hear the term voodoo, that is actually a religion that has its own deed, has its own practices. And that is very different from a system of folk magic that draws on many blended elements from initial slave trade when that was being done in the U.S., in the Americas, and people were being basically trafficked to this country. I mean, I think we should really start using that term trafficked and enslaved Mm -hmm. more often so that we just start calling it what it is. There is some commonality, but it's really important to maintain respect for the differentiation between these two practices. Yeah, our sources for this portion on Hoodoo are primarily a publication by the University of Missouri, an article in Cosmopolitan Online Magazine by Donya Coles, who's a practitioner of hoodoo, and an online article on futurity by Katrina Hazard-Donald, who wrote the book Mojo Workin' the Old African-American Hoodoo System. So it isn't voodoo, but what is it? Hoodoo is very practical in its aims, obtaining money, protection, legal resolution, love, sex, and of course, dealing with the people and situations that quote-unquote cross you. The practice can include the laying of curses as well as removing curses or uncrossings. While many root doctors can present as morally ambiguous, there are those that identify as lady hearts, those that will not engage in the practice of cursing at all. Cursing is acceptable in this belief system as the God of the Old Testament is understood to be a strongly protected deity, and it's acceptable to call on divine justice to make one's enemies suffer. So, hoodoo is practiced by many Protestant Christians historically in the southeastern United States. Hoodoo blends and synthesizes the belief systems of the Congo peoples that were enslaved and delivered by human traffickers throughout history to the Americas. And as these beliefs became embedded in the culture, additional elements were incorporated that included elements of Jewish mysticism, Appalachian folk magic, European folk magic, and some indigenous or Native American herbal work. Many passages from the Christian Bible are used in the practice of hoodoo. I love that that's one of the reasons I think that Ms. Hazard Donald named her book specifically the old African-American hoodoo system in her work, Mojo Working, because I think that that's one of the goals is that she's trying to get back to the original interpretation of the practice, which is really important because we're almost getting an a discussion about cultural appropriation, or actually we are. Hoodoo has a number of other names, including root doctoring, root work, conjure or conjuring, laying tricks, or doing quote-unquote the work or doing quote unquote that stuff, which was interestingly when I became sort of aware of it as an adult of it happening in the area I grew up, I realized that my friends, when they were talking about their 
aunts or uncles or people that were practicing that I would go, oh, she's doing that stuff. Never, <laughs> You're like, what stuff? <laughs> I never knew what they were talking about. Oh, she's doing, she's taking care of it. She's doing that stuff. So the use of the name that stuff is oftentimes a way to practice in a discreet way that's not going to call attention to the practitioner. Hoodoo practitioners work with a number of tools like candles, uh, natural substances such as roots, herbs. Most of the work is concerned with healing and protection, despite Hollywood's depictions of it being a dark, harmful practice. And additionally, the reverence for ancestors and working with and through them is an essential part of the hoodoo practice. All of our sources agree that hoodoo has its roots in African-American tradition as it was enslaved people that created hoodoo. And essentially what they did is taking their various spiritual practices and then they adapted them to the new environments that they found themselves in here in the United States. And Miss Cole's who did the Cosmopolitan article. She's the practitioner. She asserts that since hoodoo is based in the trauma of African people taken and dispersed from their homeland, that it should be practiced only by Black people. She goes on to say, quote, the work was developed to protect and heal us from the traumas of enslavement. We can see this in the routes used for traveling safely and the container works used for protecting the home against physical violence, winning a court case, or being overlooked by the law. America has been dangerous to Black people since we were brought here, and hoodoo is a way for us to protect ourselves. In order to practice hoodoo, you have to be able to engage with its history. As much as it may sting to hear, white people can't can't practice hoodoo because you can't call on the ancestors of oppressors of Black people to engage in Black magical traditions, end quote. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And I really loved diving into that article because I think she's taking an academic stance. And she's, I mean, I think that she's using her words carefully, which is very kind to say it may sting. I I think she's being very professional in the way that she delivers this message. And I think that has to be juxtaposed against the very real practice that is being done by hoodoo practitioners, root workers that provide their services to people. So she may be saying that you're only allowed to practice this as a black practitioner, but how does that translate into you doing the services for a third party that may or may not be of your racial background. And okay, I don't know. So like Minerva and Jim Williams. Exactly. Minerva she... and Jim Williams is a perfect Got example. It. But again, I, I'm not an academic in that area, but I do find it fascinating. And I, I'm, and I'm glad she's out there kind of laying uh, a dividing line mm-hmm. for people to think about because these practices kind of merge and evolve. And like, believe me, if, if you're, there's a version of this kind of work that you can do without treading on ancestors toes, I believe. I mean, it just okay. wouldn't be, have to be called something else, I guess. And you you know a practitioner or colleague, I right? do, yeah. So I reached out to this because I found it so fascinating and I wanted to ask her about it. So I reached out to her. She's a practitioner and she provides professional services as a root worker in the tradition of hoodoo. And she is a Black woman herself. And I thought we had a really great conversation. And she she artfully declined to make a statement on whether or not a non-Black person can or cannot practice the system, which I thought was very interesting. She just like, that's a really good question. What I'm going to say is she offered a valuable observation that white people really often came to the practice for power rather Hmm. than resolution. And she spoke of the progression and the ongoing incremental successes of Black people to navigate successfully through 
this historically oppressive system. Like slavery ended a long time ago, but the repercussions of slavery have lived on and been integrated into oppression and it's ongoing and we are still peeling away. I'm, and these are my words, by the way, we're still peeling that apart. But she had a comment. She goes, I mean, my parents both have master's degrees. I'm doing well. And many black people have moved on from this particular way, this need to address the effects of the impact of an oppressive system in this way. So I'm paraphrasing, Uh, but she's saying like the majority would be court work and the court work was necessary because it was usually another example of a black person being marginalized and oppressed by the existing judicial system. I just found that so fascinating. Fascinating because we layer that on top of this story of this wealthy white man from the South who still employed the services of a hoodoo priestess. Whether you believe in the stuff or not, many belief systems are deeply embedded in cognitive behavioral therapy. You believe something, Mm -hmm. it's going to happen. But then I'm also speaking as as an entitled cis white guy right yeah, that yeah. that has the ability to move easily through those things and other people might not be so easily able to navigate that but i do think it's fascinating look the reality is, is that hoodoo is used as a business for these root workers and conjure doctors they provide services that can include what we were talking about like the laying of tricks or the setting of lights for blessings for money for love very much like novenas in the catholic church it's just that you're going to a certain saint for intervention. Candle magic is very big. The use of candles in in hoodoo. So it's very interesting. There's other stuff like doll babies are specifically hoodoo. Voodoo, you would call it a voodoo doll. Got it. You would call it a poppet. If you were a witch working in Europe at the time, it's called sympathetic magic where you take something that represents something else and you mm-hmm. do something to that thing that represents something else. And some people do a, a poppet of themselves that's surrounded by coins and dressed okay. in fine clothing so that it represents the goal. Isn't that fascinating? Gosh, yes. So Terrifying look, too. <laughs> like we were saying, they provide services. It's a profession serving all. As we talked about, it's portrayed in the movie, Williams seeks out Miss Minerva for her abilities. And while the criticism of what has happened to Hoodoo with commercialization, there's also two additional factors. I mean, what would have happened if this had not been captured by the capitalist market? And what do you do with the genie that's now out of the bottle? And I don't have yeah. the answer to that. I don't know. There are root workers around the world now that have merged many folk traditions. So is what they're doing even hoodoo anymore? Is it about mm-hmm. calling it that? I don't know. There's even an online directory of practitioners called the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers. So oh, okay. you need work, wow. you go and you find it. The research that you pulled up talked about about taking something from this marginalized group and then sort of snake oil salesman at the turn of the century, yes. taking it, repackaging it and selling it back right. to them. And that's where I think that the, the problem rises from. I'm not an academic of this area to have an opinion, but it is fascinating. And I'm so glad that academics and authors, practitioners like Ms. Coles and Ms. Hazard Donald are are instigating these discussions. I think it's really important. For sure. Hoodoo is now quietly present in many communities around the United States. And although it's primarily a Black folk magic system, it's practiced by people of varying racial and ethnic backgrounds. So while listening to us this far, you're probably thinking, well, what about voodoo? Isn't that the same thing? No, they're actually two very different practices. Voodoo is a religion with specific deities. The evolution of voodoo starts in religious beliefs of the various nations within Africa, where individuals were then enslaved and trafficked, as we said earlier, the forced blending 
of these various tribes and nations melded many deities within those beliefs, which then had to be hidden within the predominant Catholic communities in the Americas. And as a religion, voodoo has specific practices, some of which you have to be ordained to perform. It has religious leaders known as mambos and hugans who oversee these practices. The deities and spirits are known as loa, and they are worshipped, and they are definitely to be respected. In hoodoo, there's a belief in spirits and life-giving energies, but there are no specific gods or a god that must be followed. You're free to worship any gods that you want or none at all, if you wish. And there's no organized hierarchy or initiations as there are in other forms of magic practice. But this doesn't mean there are no rules doing the root work or conjuring, but it doesn't have to be specific to the structure associated with religion like voodoo is. In the Futurity article in which they interview Katrina Hazard-Donald, who wrote the Mojo Working Book, she talks about why she decided to write the historical piece. She felt that hoodoo was being exploited, as most things do in commercial enterprise. She reported that this actually started happening right around World War One, and continues to this day with what she calls commercialized or tourist hoodoo. So she really kind of focuses on the novelty items that are found in many shops in New Orleans and around the country. Like, and she speaks about one in particular, there's a working called hot foot powder. And the purpose of using hot foot powder is to get rid of somebody. Like you want to get rid of a coworker, you want to get rid of a neighbor, you sprinkle this powder across where they would walk. And it's not Mm. poison or anything. It's made of nothing but herbs. And then there would be maybe a petition in your shoe, something that's written so that every time you walk, your heel is hitting the name of the person to get them out of your periphery. But because of her research, she's gone back before that. And she says one might see hot foot powder, which is derived from a misunderstanding of the traditional spell known as the walking foot, which was designed to make victims walk in unusual ways or make their legs trembled. So Mm. one thing that was meant to do one certain thing, and then it was commercialized, repackaged, revamped into something completely different. And she has come to believe that many of these shops are run by non-practitioners and they really have no business trying to make money off of tourism in this way. And when she was being interviewed, she stated, I wanted to go back and provide an account of how we turned a traditional African religion into a novelty, to something sold in curio shops. I wanted to point out the shortcomings in these interpretations and show readers what really happened. Yes. So the other insinuated hoodoo piece of the film is that after Jim is acquitted, he refuses to apologize to Danny's spirit for causing his death. And by some sort of fancy camera work (laughs) that is supposed to be insinuating this paranormal power, he's stricken with this heart attack, collapsing right where Danny died in the study. And in reality, we know that It was eight months later when he passed from complications with pneumonia and heart failure after his acquittal. So, well, Danny is not working on Williams' schedule, right? (laughs) Revenge is a dish best served cold. He was going to make it happen when he was going to make it happen. Get it together, Danny. That's and that's an area that, like, I, I mean, that's a shortcoming in my research. I mean, I would. There's so much to learn about any of these practices. I mean, I wouldn't really know where to find that. I don't know if apology is part of it. I think Miss Minerva is one of the ones that's sort of saying this will work better if you get it right. You get right with him, even if he's dead. If you, you can make it right with the spirit. And Williams, I mean, it's another way, I don't know if they intended to do this, but it really kind of marks his narcissism, right? Yeah, oh sure. Like he's digging his heels in, I didn't do anything wrong. Because by this time, like most narcissists, he's probably already justified it in his mind 
why it's okay for him to have killed him. So fascinating, fascinating story with a supernatural element that now has basically continues to revitalize an entire city and an entire industry. I would say also, I would be fascinated to know if Miss Minerva was actually blind. It's interesting too, because there is a trope that is in television film and there's a combined thing here that is should be noted and one of them is called the magical negro where suddenly there's the wise negro that comes in and helps the the poor white person find themselves find the potential whatever get out of whatever trouble they're in right 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 and then there's another is the blind seer and that goes back Mm -hmm. even back into greek tragedy and greek drama is that there's a prophetess or there's a prophet who is either blind or has their sight removed. And then even to a Disney film, Princess and the Frog. Princess and the Frog. Yeah, so Mama Odie played wonderfully by the way by jennifer lewis she's yep. hysterical but yeah did you did you get a wondering a if first one thing was influencing I of, yeah i when i watched midnight in garden of good and evil again i thought oh my god princess and the frog they had to have literally drawn mama Odie after minerva because it's so strikingly similar but maybe you're right maybe it is just a a trope that gets trope. repeated. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Mm. Well, we are not done, folks, because no. we want to tell you about a couple of contemporary crime cases having to do with hoodoo. I'm going to talk about the Don Bennett fraud case. And Don Bennett was a financial advisor, radio show host, and owner of the luxury sportswear brand site DJBennett.com based out of Maryland. And Bennett started a brokerage career in 1987. By the mid-1990s, she was registered with Leg Mason Wood Walker, where she managed the accounts of clients, some who stayed on with her for decades, eventually becoming investors in djbennett.com. And in 2006, she started her own investment firm, Bennett Group Financial Services. Four years later, she began a radio show called Financial Myth Busting with Don Bennett, which aired in the D.C. area. So she began recruiting her friends and clients, some who started investing with her after hearing her on the radio, to invest in her sportswear line when she could no longer fund it herself. And according to a Forbes article, this is a quote, she solicited these investments in the form of promissory or convertible notes for which she offered an interest rate of 15% and promised her investors she would use their money only for the operation and development costs of the business. And let me tell you, this just strikes fear in me because I like love Susie Orman. And there's a couple of people I follow on TikTok that are supposedly yep. reputable financial advisors. But you know, anybody can say they are. You really have to check this stuff out. But as you can probably guess, folks, Dawn completely swindled her followers. Yep. In August 2017, the FBI raided her home, finding a massive closet stuffed full of luxury items. I kid you not, I saw pictures of it and it looks like a sloppy picked over shoe section of Nordstrom Rack. I mean, there are thousands of color-coded shoes, which I do give her props for color-coding her stuff. I respect that. <laughs> but it's it's like racks of shoes taller than yourself, five-foot sunglass rack like you would see in a store, which is tons of luxury sunglasses on there, all this high-end stuff. Clearly, she was not investing the money. <laughs> but here's a few other things that she spent the money on. She leased a VIP box at the Dallas Cowboys Boys AT&T Stadium for half a million dollars a year. She, you'll appreciate this one, Scott, spent over $140,000 on astrological gems. <laughs> I don't like, where do, you, where do you go to buy that much money's worth? I don't, don't know. Can you imagine all the damage you could do with that money in that gem store in Palm Springs? Oh yeah, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> God, they have the, the coolest stuff. 
It is over a hundred grand on cosmetic treatments, which I will say also, I saw pictures of her and for a nearly 60 year old woman in 2019, she looks amazing. But that wasn't the only thing they found, Dr. Scott. If you were a federal agent serving a search warrant at a fraudster's home, if you're looking for stacks of cash, where do you always look? Like, where do they find the hidden money usually? Any guesses? I'm, uh, you've got me stumped. Okay. Federal agent search warrant, fraudster's home. Where would you look when you're looking for stacks of cash? I would think either in. In luggage or behind artwork. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking such a movie thing, so I'm probably yeah, way you off are. base. You are in the refrigerator and the freezer. They always are hiding cash in the freezer. Really? Open it up. Yeah. Why would you look there? It's food, right? Oh, okay. So they didn't find any cash in the fridge and freezer, but what they did find at first glance looked like a prepper's dream. Rows and rows of glass jars filled and neatly labeled, Ooh. but. This was not your grandmother's strawberry preserves. No, she's it, doing bottle magic. It was cow tongues Ooh. stored in jars with the names of SEC attorneys yeah, or their one. initials labeled on the jars. And there on Miss Bennett's personal stationery was a beef tongue shut up hoodoo spell written out. And according to the spell described in a federal affidavit, an animal tongue needed to be split open before an incantation was read out loud, which was, okay, cover your ears if you don't want to hear this. I cross and cover you. Come under my command. I command you to hold your tongue. That's interesting because the the shut up spell, container spell that I had heard about in Hoodoo splits the tongue puts the petition, the paper, mm. stuffs it in between that crack, and then nails are used oh. to push the tongue back together so it's sealed. You're making the command and you're sealing it. And then they either put it in a jar or they nail it to a tree in a cemetery. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So it seems she wasn't just dabbling in hoodoo. Prosecutors reported that she had spent over $800,000 on Hindu rituals, including to arrange for priests in India to perform ceremonies to ward off investigators. So are these the desperate actions of a woman who knows her time is up or what? Yeah, she's going to all these different practitioners for sure. And in July of 2019, the 57-year-old Bennett was sentenced to 20 years in prison after being found guilty of 17 federal charges, including securities fraud, wire fraud, and bank fraud. This was a clear-cut case of a textbook Ponzi scheme defrauding 46 investors who had invested in her clothing company, many of them elderly, oh, and no. she frauded them out of more than $20 million. Well, doesn't that kind of go along with what my colleague was saying is that she's yes. not she's not doing it for money. She's already got the money. She's doing it for power. She wants to shut up the opposition when you would think that like, why not do something? I mean, if you're going to work in the spirit world, work in the spirit world, but do some more practical stuff, you know? Well, no, I see her as being like, okay, they like, I can't keep doing this forever. And she's doing it to keep the investigators off her tail. Like, oh, I see what you're that's saying. That's why the SEC attorneys okay. names were on there. So it would foil the investigations against her. Well, maybe this is what the academics are saying. This is why it doesn't work for her. There you go. I don't know. So we have another example of a crime involving the practice of hoodoo. It's a great one, although it's a very frustrating example of exactly what I was talking about earlier, the challenges that authors that we quoted this New York Times author really did not do their research and they used a very salacious title for the article and clearly they were not versed in what 
was actually happening and they they intersperse and intermingle a lot of terms that make it very confusing yeah. but it is over 20 25 years ago so yeah maybe there yeah. was less internet stuff available on it so in 1994 two sisters out of texas went on trial for blinding their shared sister in a ritual that was allegedly for exercising her of a demonic entity the new york times article described hoodoo as, quote, a cross between Haitian voodoo and Catholicism in which spirits are real and demons take control of human bodies, end quote. So clearly, again, the writer went for the sexy soundbite rather than actual research. Exactly. The victim of the crime was Myra Obasi, who claimed that she had been possessed by a demon and allowed her sisters to engage in the ritual meant to remove the demonic presence in her body. A Dallas jury disagreed. In September of 1993, Dorothea and Beverly, the sisters, were found guilty of aggravated assault and handed 10-year suspended sentences. Attorneys for both of the perpetrators asserted that what occurred was directly the result of supernatural forces. I would have loved to have been in that courtroom to hear them say that. I, you read my mind. <laughs> I, I would love, I like, I, that's all I want to do is I want to do forensic psychology cases that involve paranormal and the paranormal. <laughs> like, I just think that would be fascinating. Yeah. They asserted to the 12 white members of the Texas jury that they just couldn't understand that these things were real. So that's that's the way they decided to defend that case. Yeah. Ex well, and you know what? That's what attorneys do. I mean, when it comes down to it, maybe that was the best approach for their defense. Totally. Yeah. Been. So supposedly the sisters had sought out the guidance of an alleged hoodoo practitioner named Benny. No follow up with him. They never were able to track him down afterwards. And they did so after members of the family began experiencing a series of debilitating headaches and children began experiencing nightmares. Benny allegedly told them that they were all under demonic attack. Benny told them to flee as they were in danger. And as they made their way to Texas, they abandoned their five children at a stranger's home and dumped a rental car in Waxahachie after becoming convinced that the car was cursed. Oh and Miss Obasi later testified that a demon had possessed her as she was driving. The three sisters then hitchhiked the rest of the way, being spotted later in the day in a predominantly black neighborhood of Dallas. And witnesses testified that the sisters struck Miss Obasi and then rubbed garlic in her eyes. A local minister shared that the sisters presented themselves at the church that she ran, begging her to pray for them. The minister stepped away into her home and then returned to find Miss Obasi bleeding from her eyes. She later found two eyes in a trash can within the church. Mm. The New York Times interviewed Professor Dave Otto, a professor of religion at Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. He stated that in hoodoo lore, the way to rid the demon could be to blind it, stating, quote, the spirit rides the individuals on the shoulders. To get the spirit to quit riding you as a horse, you would blind the horse, end quote. Okay, so again, uh. I'm not an academic, but this is not hoodoo. Honestly, I don't want to get sued by David Otto. Who knows if he's even still around? But he that's he's talking about voodoo. Like that's I, not even in terms. I mean, I'm not I don't you know, even know. Who knows cutting that, cutting people's eyes out to get rid of them of demons. I don't even know what that is, but well, I mean, yeah, I I don't even understand what he's saying. So voodoo practices, including their ceremonies to connect with divinity, they will use the term riding as the loa or the spirits or the deities temporarily take possession of the body. And that's supposed to be an honor. It's like it's like the, the evangelical charismatic version of speaking in tongues oh. is that you are being blessed by God to speak in these unintelligible languages that they've talked about in the Bible. So this is sort of a 
version of that. But I mean, in 1994, maybe this article, I don't know. It's just a bad article all the way around. It seems like they kind of did a mishmash of their sources. And I don't know, maybe the author was thinking, who who's going to test this anyway? Yeah. So three sisters on the run with a belief that one is possessed. What does that sound like, Dr. Shiloh? Falia toi? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or mass shared psychosis. Definitely mass psychosis. We even talked about in our episode, we talked about it was the Swedish twins. Yes. So the sisters that were had Folea do a shared psychosis that they were being followed. And they, I mean, they ended up killing someone, engaging in a crime as well. Right. I mean, but this involved three sisters, their children that were susceptible to all of this craziness. I mean... My goodness. Yeah. Wild, wild, wild stuff. So yeah, I, I mean, that's that's pretty much where we're wrapping up in this. I think it's also, like I noted at the top, how haunted as fuck Savannah is supposed to be. <laughs> There's just so many layers of death there from, we're talking Revolutionary War, Civil War, the yellow fever epidemic of 1820, which nearly 700 people died and were buried in mass graves. Interestingly, there's a sign at one of the cemeteries that says, as nearly 700 people died in the pandemic. It was actually 666, but they did not want to put that number. Oh, wow. Sign. Yes, yes. So they have Bonaventure Cemetery, Colonial Cemetery, and... Yeah, under the big, beautiful Forsyth Park where the fountain is, that's where the tunnels went from the hospitals to the mortuaries. And they ended up having to just stack bodies in there. And then they eventually just sealed it off. And it's a mass grave. Wow. And that's where we took our Christmas photo with my family while we were there. So think of that when that shows up on your doorstep. (laughs) I'm sure it's beautiful, though. (laughs) I want to do a couple of podcast shout outs. I highly recommend the Savannah Underground's podcast called The Most Haunted City on Earth. I listened to it leading all the way up to my trip to Savannah. And secondly, I also highly, highly recommend Erica's episode on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil on Southern Fried True Crime. If you guys... Oh, they're great. She goes through every court document, all the testimony, all the ins and outs of the evidence in detail. It's phenomenal. Plus, you get to hear her wonderful Southern accent. So... Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you guys, thanks so much. We'll be back next week with another episode on our weekly drops. I hope people will be able to make it to Pacific Northwest. We hopefully will be having a drop relatively soon. If I, I think we've got some audio coming from the True Crime Podcast Festival where we got yes. to do a collaboration with the amazing doctors of criminology, Amy and Megan. So... Keep listening, keep liking, like and subscribe. Tell all your friends, make them subscribe. Yes, yes, make them. <laughs> Don't put a curse on them. No, or just anything, coerce them. Just... just coerce them in a southern way, like in a passive aggressive, <laughs> like, don't you really? I thought you would really want to listen to that one. You should subscribe. Guess not. Bless your heart. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> all right, guys, we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks. Bye bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. 
Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The Ellie Not-So-Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled behind the couch stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements subscribe to la not so confidential so you never miss a new episode lastly we would be honored if you joined our patreon at patreon.com slash la not so podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events social gatherings and super cool swag coming your way thanks for listening and join us next time on la not so confidential